Can we just pray, too, uh, as we begin this part of the service? God, we are grateful. We sing out our gratitude and our praise for you with all of the earth, with all of the universe. We're so grateful, God, for the light you bring into the dark places in our lives. We're grateful for the hope that you give to those of us who come today who are hopeless. God, we love you. We're grateful for your presence with us. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, it's a risky question that I'm going to ask because it will show my age a little bit. I'm starting to show it in other ways too, so I'm getting more comfortable with that. How many of you remember the Veggie Tales series? Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and you'll admit it too, which is great. Uh, Veggie Tales was something my kids grew up on. It was an extremely popular animated series and was the brainchild of Phil Vischer. Uh, Phil, like any married man, was wise enough to admit that he owes all of his success to his wife. And that's largely because when he first thought of this series, the characters were not going to be fruits and vegetables, they were going to be talking candy bars. Um, great appeal to kids, but his wife said, you know, I think parents would probably rather have healthier choices talking to their kids than candy bars. So he switched. Uh, Phil talks about his journey of faith and says that he grew up in a church and the culture that celebrated people who accomplished great things for God, people who had a huge impact on this world. And so Phil, growing up in that culture, dedicated his life to doing something that would have an amazing impact. So he designed this series that would teach biblical moral principles to kids while employing the best computer-generated graphics available in the early to mid-90s. And so he launched VeggieTales, which, if you're not familiar with the series, was a bunch of um, talking vegetables and fruit uh, living on a kitchen counter and teaching biblical principles. When you say it out loud, it doesn't sound like it would work, right? Uh, It actually sounds more like uh, Phil was doing drugs at that point in his life. Uh, Within a few years, though, of launching VeggieTales, it was wildly successful, and Big Ideas Productions, which was his parent company he started, had turned into a $44 million a year company and had over 200 employees. And Phil, based on how he was raised, saw that as validation that he was doing something great for God. And he loved the stories that came in of kids who were discovering God, discovering biblical values who had never heard them before. So... On the principal front, he was doing well. The business was booming. God was pleased with the great work he was doing for God. But after the company went bankrupt in 2003, Phil began to question the very values that had driven his career. And he writes, The more I dove into Scripture, the more I realized I'd been deluded. I had grown up with drinking a dangerous cocktail, a mix of the gospel, the Protestant work ethic and the American dream. My Savior, the one I followed, seemed to be equal parts Jesus, Ben Franklin, and Henry Ford. And my eternal value was rooted in what I could accomplish for God. Phil's personal and financial crisis forced him to re-examine his faith, to have a crisis of faith, if you will. It caused him to think about what the posture was he had assumed in his relationship with God. And while wrestling with those questions are great for us to do, we all come to a point where we do that eventually. Wrestling with what our faith is built on and how we've constructed our faith is a really good thing to do, but it's not pleasant. 
it hurts deeply when we wake up one day and discover that what we thought was solid ground we were building our faith on is now all of a sudden wobbly, shaking. And it leaves us searching for a different kind of relationship with God, one that can answer the danger and the chaos and the fear that comes into our lives. So I think every single one of us is going to come to a point in our walk with Jesus where we're forced to do the same kind of thing that Phil Vischer did. We're going to have to examine the faith that we've constructed. And and the way I like to think about this is that as you come into a relationship with Jesus and walk through your life, you start to build this structure. I like to think of it as a brick structure. And it is your faith that you're building. And at some point in your journey, you're going to encounter something that's going to make you question what you've built. And at that point, the hard work that a faith crisis brings is you're going to have to take each one of those bricks out one at a time. You have to look at them. Some of them you're going to look at and go, well, this really wasn't even true when I put it in there. And I've come to realize that, so you set it aside. Some of the bricks you look at, you're going to go, this was really helpful at one point in my journey, but it's not helpful now, and I'm going to set it aside. And then you'll find some of those bricks in there that you go, this is a really helpful one. This will contribute to the strength of my relationship with God, will help me grow, and you put it right back into the structure. Because if we don't do that sorting work, then the ones that we need to discard are going to stand in the way of our future growth in our relationship with God. In a lot of ways, that's what I'm hoping this series will do for each of us as we walk through it. That we're going to examine the faith that we've built, look at the postures we've taken in our relationship with God, and work that through. And again, as I said last week, uh, I don't think anyone intentionally sets out to make one of these first four postures uh, the sole basis of your relationship with God. I think we're more likely to take pieces of those four and adapt them and plug them into the structure of the faith that we're building. So on the first week of this series, just for review, we talked about a life under God, where our posture, our belief, even if we wouldn't say it this way, we act this way, that we believe that we're sinners and we live continually at risk of God's judgment and punishment in our lives. As a result of that, in order to gain control over the chaos in our world, we literally work to appease God through strict obedience in our lives. If I can just be moral enough, if I can obey enough, if I can do all the right rituals, then God will control the chaos and danger and fear in my life. Some of us live that way. Some of us live in a life over God posture where we become a manager of what's going on in our world. We do that with a belief that God has in the scriptures given us an operating manual for life, including manageable outcomes, and proven formulas. And so it's up to us to figure out those principles and formulas, execute them flawlessly, if we hope to control the chaos and the danger and the fear in our world. Today we want to take a look at a life for God. And this posture moves us into the role of a worker in God's kingdom. Believing that you and I have been created for the sole purpose of accomplishing some great mission for God. That we can do nothing better in this life than do something great for God. And as a result, God's love and grace are diminished in our life, set to the side, and we zero in on what it is we can accomplish for God. 
of all the postures we've talked about so far, this is the one that I most identify with. I have a tendency to live that way, feel that way, act that way, and partly because my whole adult life I've been working for churches or non or parachurch organizations, and I feel like my whole life is a mission. You know, my private life, my personal life, my business life, all of that is a mission for God. And the challenge is, for me sometimes, is that work I do for God can overshadow my first calling, which is simply to be a child of God. That posture is an easy default mode for me because the churches that I grew up in reinforced that idea. We were taught as kids, there's nothing better, nothing greater you can do with your life, your one and only life, than invested as a pastor or a missionary or to serve in some kind of a vocational work for God. Adding gravity to the posture are the numerous biblical texts that affirm and celebrate individuals who did spend their entire lives serving God, doing things for Him. And no one illustrates the tension of this posture in our relationship with God better than the Apostle Paul. He lived it and he talked about it openly and honestly in the Scriptures. After his miraculous conversion, Paul did more than anyone else to take the gospel beyond the little Jewish communities where Christianity was founded. And this calling from God to spread the gospel occupied the remainder of his life as he went into communities. He taught people about the love and grace of God. And when people began to accept Jesus, he formed them into little house churches all over the community. And then he raised up leaders to carry on the work when he left. And then eventually he left and he went to another town to start the work all over again. Along the way, he faced incredible unimaginable difficulties as he was multiple times he was beaten by religious leaders and by government officials he was nearly killed multiple times and he suffered the brutalities of being a first century global traveler that were just brutal the only thing i can compare it to is like if you regularly have to fly out of midway so paul did all of this you read the book of acts and if you look at it it would be easy to believe that this was the most important aspect of his life because the book of Acts tells the story of how he traveled, where he planted churches, the people he worked with and won to Christ. You would think that what mattered most to Paul was the work that he did for God. But if you carefully read his letters to those churches, which comprise the majority of the New Testament, it reveals something remarkable. Everything, every aspect of Paul's life took a backseat to his personal relationship with God. Now, after Paul established the church in Philippi, for example, uh, he raised up leaders, he went on to another town. There were some folks who came in teaching false teaching. They were called the Judaizers, um, simply because they tried to teach the people in Philippi that it wasn't enough to just accept Jesus. You had to actually become a Jew before you could become a Christian, and you did that by following three rigorous practices. One, if you were a male, you were circumcised. Two, you had to follow all the, the laws and customs around observing the Sabbath. No work. You know, it's just a time to focus on your relationship with God. You had to follow those laws. And then you had to follow the dietary laws in the Old Testament. The ones that describe what's clean and not clean. What you can eat and what you can't eat. In essence, by enforcing those three things, they put 90% of the weight of the Old Testament law on people who just were trying to follow Jesus. 
And as they taught, the Judaizers were not shy. They bragged about their own accomplishments and all the things that they had done for God and what incredible believers they were as Christians because of these things they had done for God. So Paul gets wind of this, and he wants to just ferret it out and destroy that thinking in this church at Philippi. So he writes a letter to them. That's the main purpose of the letter to the Philippians, is to root out this false teaching that's going on. And he actually stoops down to the level of the Judaizers to try to make his point that he has a Jewish pedigree that's better than theirs, and to list out all the things he'd done to follow God. So he writes to them in Philippians 3, he says, look, if somebody else thinks they've got reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Paul is saying here, look, I am Jewish by birth. I'm not a late in life convert. I didn't come to Judaism in my 30s or 40s. I was born into a family with two parents who were both full-blooded Jews. I myself am a full-blooded Jew, and I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am an Israelite from birth. What's more than that, he says, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I share blood in my veins from the line of David, king of Israel. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm at the top of the stack, Paul's saying. If you want to measure this, here's who I am. He says in other places. He was educated by Gamaliel, who was a rabbi. Gamaliel was the most sought-after teacher in all of Judaism. I was educated by Gamaliel. I'm a highly educated individual. Best education you can get. He spoke three languages fluently. This is an intelligent dude that's going around teaching the gospel. In regard to the law, he says, if we want to go there, I'm a Pharisee. He chose that lifestyle. You didn't just get born into the life of being a Pharisee. You chose it as an adult. You entered into training, and you, it was rigorous, and it was difficult because there were hundreds of laws in the Old Testament added to the oral traditions that the people had established. And you had to obey all of those commands and know them by heart. Paul said, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a part of the most impressive and respected religious group in all of Judaism. As for zeal, well, I persecuted the church. And that's documented well in the book of Acts for us to read. As for righteousness, based on the law, I was flawless, faultless. Now, Paul's not saying here he lived a perfect, sinless life. He's saying, no, I kept the law as it's written and as it's taught. I kept the law, including all of those ordinances that were written in there for what happens if you sin. How do you get purified and forgiven. He had led an exemplary way of life from birth on. Based on his life before accepting Christ, based on his work for God after accepting Christ, there aren't many people that could stack their pedigree, their accomplishments up against the Apostle Paul in terms of what he had done for God. And so it's fascinating to read what he writes next to this little church He evaluates his life in accounting terms. He puts everything in his life on a profit and loss ledger sheet. He puts it in scales and weighs it out, if you will. And he says, look, whatever were gains to me, whatever was to my profit as a Jew or as a Christian, I now count loss for the sake of Christ. It's moved from the profit side to the loss side on the ledger sheet. And what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake 
I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is one of those passages that I love because some of the nuances, some of the the weight of what he's trying to say in this passage is lost when it's translated to English. When he says, knowing Christ, he doesn't mean a head knowledge. This isn't about amassing facts about Jesus in your brain. It's not an intellectual knowledge he's talking about. The Greek word there is the word for an intimate, experiential knowledge of Jesus. It's a personal connection with Jesus that Paul values above anything else that he's done in his life for God. And on the scales, if you try to compare all that he's done, well, everything that's in his good works amount to nothing more than, our Bible says, garbage. Except that's not the word Paul used. It's a little dicey to translate it into English. It's a little more descriptive. Um, And I've wrestled with how to help you understand the word without cussing on stage on a Sunday morning, right? Usually usually a goal of mine. Some doesn't slip out in the middle of the message. Um, So what Paul really is saying here, let me just give you a picture for it. So some of you may have snuck out into your yard this morning, right? It rained all night. We had this little break of about a half hour, 45 minutes, where it's just peaceful and quiet outside, and there's no rain, the sun's rising. You were asleep then, I'm sure. But if you had walked out in your yard at that time, you just enjoy nature, right? Nobody else in your family awake. You're just walking around the yard. And then all of a sudden, as you're walking, you realize something's been in your yard ahead of you. Because you just stepped in the evidence. You with me? It's all over the bottom of your shoes. So what Paul is really writing here, the literal word translated, he's saying, look, if I take everything that I've done for Jesus, everything that I did as a Jew, I put it all on this side of the scale, this side of the ledger sheet, and I balance it out with something on this side, it's equal to a steaming pile of... Well, you kind of get where I'm headed, right? That's the literal word that he's using here. See... That's why I think the study in the Bible is fun, because you discover little things like that. Paul had a potty mouth. Um, He literally says that's what it is. He has this huge list of accomplishments, this amazing resume. Didn't matter to Paul. What mattered to him most, above everything else in his life, was his personal connection with Jesus. And it wasn't just his thing. It's what he prayed for everyone that he had taught in that community about following Jesus. He wrote in Ephesians, he wrote a prayer, and he said, look, my prayer for you as a church is that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. That your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. That you may have the power to understand, as all of God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. There it is again. Paul's saying, look, I don't want you to just have a head knowledge about how much God loves you. I don't want you to just be able to spout verses. I want you to experience that love, to know it, to feel it, to be able to see the evidence of his love in your life. And that was his desire, his deepest desire for you, for me, for all believers. It wasn't that they would do more for God. 
It wasn't that they would go out and transform the world for Jesus. It was that we would experience the depth of Christ's love in a meaningful way and let that drive whatever we do. I think the biggest failing of us trying to live a life for God posture is that it puts our work for God ahead of our relationship with God himself. No matter how good the cause is that you sign up for, no matter how important the volunteering role is here or in some kind of an organization, no matter how rewarding the work is, we must never allow the work that we're doing for God to take His place that only He should have in our hearts. Now, I understand this. I do. There is an adrenaline rush. There's a, a, a sense of busyness There is a sense of accomplishment that can be addictive, and it makes sense in the way we're created. Nobody gets picked for a team with a goal of sitting on the bench all season. Nobody devotes years of service to a company with the idea that when they retire, they won't be able to find anything significant they've done to talk about. We don't want to think that our funeral eulogy will declare that our life really didn't matter a whole lot. We want to make a a difference. We're designed for more in this life. And our hunger for significance, our need for meaning, deeper goes deeper in us than the need for food or water or air. We want to know that our lives count for something. We were designed for meaning the way that Porsches are designed for speed. But here's the danger. If we do that living in a life for God posture... It takes our fear of insignificance and just pours gasoline on it. And the rest of the world may see the resulting fire as ambition or the kind of drive that was evident in Paul's life. But when the flames of service for God are fueled by the fear, they reveal none of the peace, none of the joy, none of the love that Paul had as he served Jesus. From the Garden of Eden onward, I think every single one of us who's ever lived has been given a mission in our lives. There's something that only we can do. People, only we know that we can have an influence on for Christ. There's some task that you're uniquely gifted for. I believe that, and that matters. I'm not saying that serving doesn't matter. I'm just saying that that work was not meant to be accomplished outside of perpetual communion with God, empowered by His presence, and his love. We weren't meant to earn God's love. We weren't meant to earn God's favor. What we do flows out of a recognition that it's already been freely given. A life driven by love is what we're after, not a life driven by ambition or achievement. A life driven by our relationship with God changes everything. We serve not to accomplish something great for God, but because we want others to know God's love that we ourselves have experienced. And ultimately, when we find that place where, how, where God's unique design in our life and God's love for us connect with a deep need in this world, that's when serving becomes a pure joy. I, I can't think about that whole concept without thinking about a story I heard years ago. It's not original with me, but I love the story. I want to close with that this morning. Years ago, there was a supermarket chain that offered a training for 3,000 of their frontline employees. 
Barbara was the speaker, and she talked to this group all day about how people could make a difference, no matter what level of the company they worked at, how every interaction with another person is a chance to create a memory, to bless somebody's life. And she talked to these employees about how important it is to look for, to not miss those moments when you can bless somebody's life. And then she did a dangerous thing with 3,000 people in the room. She said, look, if you've heard this today and you've got questions or you just want to talk about it, here's my number. Give me a call. Mm-hmm. About a month later, she did get a call from one of the attendees. It was a 19-year-old boy who bagged the groceries at the checkout counter, and his name was Johnny. Johnny got on the phone. She answered. He proudly announced to her that he had Down syndrome, and then he went on with his story. Johnny had wrestled after that workshop. He had wrestled with what he could do to make a difference. After all, he said, I'm just a bagger. But then he got an idea. Every night when he came home from work, he would sit down and he would begin to search for a thought for the day that he could use for his next shift. Something that was positive. Something that was a reminder of just how good life is. Something that would encourage people with how much they matter. And if he couldn't find a quote that he liked, he just made one up. And then he would sit down with his dad. They'd put it into the computer. They'd print off sheets of paper. He'd cut those into strips. And he would collect 300 strips of paper every night. And then he would sit down and meticulously sign each one of them. The next day when he was at work, after he finished bagging a customer's order, he would grab the last bag, he'd put a quote on the top of that bag, and then he would stop everything that he was doing. He would look at the person and say to them, I put an, a very important quote in your grocery bag today. I hope that it helps you have a good day. Thank you for coming in. About a month later, the store manager called Barbara herself. She said, you're not going to believe what's happening in our store. Uh, I, was, I was making my rounds today, you know, just kind of walking through the store, making sure everything was functioning. And I noticed that the line at the cash register where Johnny worked was three times longer than anybody else's. It stretched all the way back through the frozen food section. So I did what I was trained to do as a manager, and I got on the intercom, and I called cashiers to the front. We opened up more registers. And then I went to the line, and I said, hey, um, there are registers open. You can be taken care of right away. She said to a person, they all went, that's okay. I'm good. I want to stay in Johnny's line. One customer grabbed her hand and said, you know, I used to come to your store once a week, maybe every two weeks. But now, anytime I'm close to the store, I stop in and just buy something because I want to get Johnny's thought for the day. Johnny's example uh, wreaked some havoc on the checkout lines, but it changed the store. Gals who worked in the floral department realized what Johnny was doing and began to think, what could they do? And so if somebody failed to pick up a corsage they'd ordered the day before, or if, as they're arranging flowers, the stem broke, instead of throwing those things away as they used to do, they started walking around the store looking for little girls or older women to pin that corsage on and wish them a happy day. The guys in the butcher shop started wrapping the packages that they cut for people. And at the end of wrapping it, they put a bow on it and handed it to people. The greatest miracle of all that happened in the store is that the people who made the shopping carts finally figured out how to to make carts with wheels that work. That'll make a good day. 
Johnny's example changed the store, changed him. He no longer thinks of himself as just a bagger. Johnny's life is to, goal in life is to fill people with hope. And his line is still three times as long as anybody else's, and that's not going to change. Because his words meet a deep need in people's soul. Sometimes words as simple as thank you, I hope you have a good day, can feed a soul. When people get words from Johnny, they're reminded of the beauty of one person forgetting whatever challenges or struggles they've got in life. One person who forgets the chaos and the fear. One person who simply wants to make his life a blessing to someone else. I am convinced that's the kind of life that God calls us to. It is not an invitation to a productive life where we do incredible things for God. Our primary invitation is to know and understand God's amazing love for us and to experience that love in our lives. Our invitation from God is not to competency, it's about intimacy. Our invitation from God is not about perfection, it's about connection. To let everyone who sees us, everyone we know that we know see that everything we do, everything we are flows out of our life with God and our love for him. It's an invitation to a deep connection with the God of the universe who is already present in the tangledness of our lives.